Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom. We're welcoming in one of our old friends, Darius Kamali. He was on before. Uh, he is, among other things, and he'll tell you more about himself, the host of the Persian version. He also is the administrator and founder of a terrific website, Facebook group, as well. Darius, how are you today? Doing well. Uh, who are you calling old? <laughs> well, in, in, in terms of my podcast existence. <laughs> that could be in podcast years, yeah. Yeah, it, they're like dog years. You know how it is. They're like dog years. Right. You, you know how it is. I mean, yeah, you, know, you, you did your 11 podcasts, and, and, and now all of a sudden it's like, oh, boy. <laughs> I know. Uh, hey, listen, I'm going to jump back into it uh, this month. So I hope so. I, I your podcast is terrific, uh, and and there's both some long versions and there's some short version ones. And it's it's so folks out there, if you want to binge all of the Persian versions, and one of them is the, is a simulcast with the Garden of Doom, uh, you could probably catch up in in one afternoon, but certainly in two days. So anyway, Darius, please tell them a little bit about yourself. You're not just a podcaster. Uh, you there's a lot of dimensions to you. Um, including some that including some that involve Tinseltown. Yeah, a little bit uh, uh, fifth dimension sort of guy. Uh, my background, yeah, includes well, uh, I had a, a stint, I guess you could say, as an analyst for a, a State Department supported NGO or non governmental organization, which was actually uh, government supported. So <laughs> there's your irony right there. But uh, that uh, it served as the visual evidence wing for uh, several uh, war crimes tribunals for the former Yugoslavia uh, 
and uh, for Rwanda and also for Iraq, the Ba'athist regime in Saddam Hussein. Uh, then uh, I transitioned uh, into being everything from researcher to writer to producer, segment producer, series producer for a number of uh, History Channel shows, other shows as well, but most of them were ended up on as on History Channel as the distributor. And then after that, I sort of fell into something entirely different, at least on the surface, which was feature animation. Um, did a film called Igor um, in 2008 and have done one or two others since then um, for Netflix and Amazon Prime and a little bit of augmented reality. So I, I'm wearing uh, a lot of hats and uh, on this topic that we are talking about today, I have to say again, that I mentioned this last time, but I want to make sure that I, I let everyone know I don't consider myself to be an expert in this field. My knowledge in the field is mostly journalistic, I would say, as an enthusiastic uh, amateur, uh, hopefully uh, in the best sense of that word, which uh, I think has something to do with someone who has passion. So I'll take that. And and uh, what I uh, <clears throat> have learned over the last, I guess, couple of years, mostly since the since the beginning of the pandemic, I have to say, when I had some time on my hands uh, regarding this topic, uh, is has been very eye-opening, you could say, uh, maybe even astounding to me. Uh, and those who've been on the journey with me on the Ariana and the Persian version group and podcasts, um, that I've decided to actually develop, I mentioned this to you yesterday offline, Jeff, uh, both a book project and a documentary on this subject. And so I'm sort of officially announcing that now. <laughs> That's very exciting. Those, those are great projects. And mention the name of the Facebook group again so folks, if they want to take a look for it, they can, sure. they can yeah. peruse it, join uh, it. Absolutely. On, on Facebook, there's a group called Ariana, A-R-Y-A-N-A, -A -A, and it's the uh, history, art, and culture of the Iranic and Iranian and Persian and Persianate uh, peoples. They just put those terms and it'll come up. And the podcast, uh, which you're aware of, is simply the Persian version, um, which, if you remember this from last time, it's actually, a, I thought I had invented the word, and I thought it was very clever and very cute, but it turns out there's a poem by that name, by Robert Graves, but that doesn't, have, you know, it's, uh, uh, he, he's long dead. <laughs> so. Yeah, so, yeah, long dead, and listen, copyrights have to do with the entire context of the work, not the name uh, itself. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I'm kidding about that, but uh, but I'm actually happy because I, I actually um, I, I read the poem uh, as the first episode of the of the podcast. So and, and it rhymes. And, and by the way, folks, if you want to catch up on the the last podcast that where Darius talked about a lot of stuff. I mean, from <laughs> from the origins of the Iranic peoples to the difference between Persian and and Iran mythology. We talked about Zoroastrianism. We talked a little Zoroastrian, bit about Mithraism. You, you, you name it. The, the podcast, the title is simply the Persian version. So there's, it's the same show on the Persian version entitled, I think it's called the Persian version on the Garden of Doom. Or if you look on the Garden of Doom, the show is entitled the Persian version because I am that clever. Now I'm going to have to come up with a new name for this one, but that's okay. So t today... Uh, you know, Darius wants to ex expand a little bit 
more on a little bit where he left off. He wanted to clarify a couple things. He also wants to talk about sort of the migrations of Iranic peoples beyond what we think of as, you know, near Asia, from far Asia to what we call, call by the way, the, the term near Asia is so doopy, dofy. New, you know, near, near to what? <laughs> Tempe should mention that. Oh, by the way, um, uh, you can hear me fine, right, Jeff? What's that? You can hear me fine, yes? I hear you perfect, yep. Okay, okay great. Um, yeah, in fact, I'm glad that you brought that up. That's sort of a pet peeve of uh, a lot of us, not just from my ethnicity, but from anywhere in Asia. Uh, the concept of near east and far east. Well, near and far from whom? Exactly. Eurocentric, but clearly it's a European term. And so, you know, I think the better term, and I'm not one of these people who insists on, you know, gets mad if people use the, uh, the wrong name for anything. But but if we're going to be correct about it, we should probably say Western Asia and Eastern Asia, as opposed to near and far, because that implies near and far from whom, you know? Exactly. Well, you're in California, so China, China and Japan is your Near East. So I just use the con In fact, people don't um, even sort of always make the connection that, what we call the Near East or the Middle East is actually Asia. Right. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I just misspoke. It's not your Near East. It's your Near West. It's your Near Asia. Your Near East is Utah. Right. So, all right. So let, let's forget. Yes, uh, I agree with you. I, th I think the terminology is extremely outdated. And yes, it's obviously from a European standpoint. It's not even from a, a American uh, European standpoint, because it doesn't make any sense in the context of America either, or at least, you know, maybe, you know, uh, you know, the Eastern time zone, but, but maybe the central, I'm not sure. Anyway, not, yeah. not, not particularly important today. Something we'll work on in the future, I suppose you and I, but while, while you pick up, I know that you want to clarify, uh, one, one term, which is rightfully a pet peeve of yours and it should be. And then I know you want to trace sort of the migrations of various Iranic peoples into Europe. And then we were going to talk about some stuff that, uh, it's your story. You, you, you tell it. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I think you're talking about the, the, the word Aryan. Yeah, I've also do that first, or I was going to leave it to last, but we might as well get out of the way. Yeah, let's yes, do absolutely. It. Um, see, it, it, that's, that's a, a term that's used differently um, in different places, or it's not used differently, but it has different connotations these days. Sure. Because of its association with Nazi ideology, right? So let's, let's be clear right up front that nobody here is a Nazi. It's about the Nazi dis ideology. Aryan is, is simply a, a, a designation for a group of people. Now, how broadly it's defined and how uh, how tightly uh, uh, and how uh, specifically it depends on the era and who you ask. It originally was used for all of the Indo-European ethno-linguistic family. And that's a very large linguistic family. Uh, that includes almost all of the European languages, as well as some non-European languages like Persian, like Sanskrit in India, so on and so forth. And in fact, the discovery uh, of this family, uh, if I could tell you, you know, a, couple, a couple of things about that, occurred in the 19th century, really, when the British um, were ruling India. Uh, some of the scholars there were astounded to find how much of the vocabulary of some of the Indian languages, particularly Sanskrit, was similar to or identical with many of the European languages. And they just couldn't explain 
why this was, because they're so geographically uh, separated and far from each other. And that began the whole field of Indo-European studies, which is, uh, includes many sorts of disciplines within it, linguistics, philology, uh, today even you know, archaeogenetics, uh, archaeology, history, so on and so forth. And uh, the discovery was made that, in fact, all of these languages had a, a common ancestor, uh, which we now theoretically call Proto-Indo-European, PI for short, P-I-E, right? Uh, and that probably uh, uh, those people that we call the Proto-Indo-Europeans, the PI people, the ancestors of all these languages, including most of the European languages, plus Persian, Sanskrit, Armenian, and a couple of others, originated somewhere north of the Black Sea, the Pontic Steppe, they call it. Basically, today's where the conflict is happening in, in Ukraine with Russia. There are alternate theories. Some say it was actually Anatolia. Some say it was closer to Azerbaijan, maybe northern Iran. Uh, but by and large, sort of between the Caspian and Black Seas is where the uh, the vast majority of people, even Colin Renfro, who was kind of a, uh, a bit of a singular character in the field, believe that that's where the parent uh, originated. Now, that, we're talking about 3,000 or so BC, right? And right. even uh, earlier than that. So 5,000 years before the present. Right. Since that time, um, these, this group, this Pi group, this Indo-European, or something, they used to call it the Aryan group, uh, separated into various parts. Some of them became the Germans, Germanic peoples went westward into Europe. Some of them became the Celtic people. Some of them became the Italic people, which includes Latin, right? the Greeks, uh, and a few of them went eastward, like the Indo-Iranians, the uh, Indo-Aryans, who are the, today's Iranians, the Armenians, the Tukarians, and the Indo-Aryans, uh, who, uh, who went into northern India and created Sanskrit and contributed to the Vedic religions of India. So we're talking about uh, a vast geographic range, started somewhere, we think, in, in what is now Ukraine, of course it there was no Ukraine then. Right. Most of the rest, well, most of these people uh, migrated westward and created most of the European peoples, and some of them went eastward and created the Indo-Iranian peoples. Since World War II, since uh, you know, uh, not only Hitler but even before that, some of the 19th-century scientific racists uh, like Gobineau, uh, Frenchman, and some Germans. Um, took this theory and postulated that everything good in the world that has been created has been created by these people. And by the way, uh, Germans are the purest remaining version of these people. <laughs> Naturally. Uh, yeah, obviously. Right? <laughs> and, you know, there, there's been many volumes written on this topic, so on and so forth. And so after World War II, because the word Aryan had gotten an, a negative connotation uh, due to its association with this very specific and very temporal German ideology. So it no longer was really just a, a group of an, an ethnicity or a language group, but it had a, it had a connotation of superiority, right? Uh, so linguists have stopped using that term for the whole group. They only use it now for the Indo-Iranian group the group that went eastward. Uh, 
So if you look at any reference or any book, those people are still called uh, Aryans. Um, but the broader group is, is called Indo-European. Now, I don't mind which group is, but uh, it, you know, which word is used, but I want to make sure that people understand that if you go to Iran or Afghanistan or Tajikistan or India, they regularly use the word Aryan. And, you know, they, I think, very, uh, uh, very uh, understandably say, look, we had nothing to do with, with German ideology of superiority. This is just our name. It's like telling someone to stop using the name for their ethnicity that they've used for thousands of years. And so that's where we are. Uh, I also want to add that, you know, uh, I think the best way to distinguish uh, between the Nazi ideology and those who are just simply using it as an ethno-linguistic designation uh, is, is not to try to deny that <laughs> such a group exists. Some people have gone that direction and said, well, there never was any such group. There is no policy. I think that's bogus. There's mountains of evidence that <laughs> there was such a group. There's a, you know libraries filled with evidence today, even genetic evidence that there was such an ethno-linguistic group. We don't have to deny the existence of an ethno-linguistic historical group. All we have to do is deny the Nazi ideology that was attached to it in the 19th century. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I think it's easier said than done, but it makes a lot of sense. And, and I think that the first thing is getting the information out there, because I think a lot of people, especially in my part of the world, the United States and, and probably other parts of Europe and, and, and probably the other continents as well that aren't maybe as focused on it, just to, just don't know that. So thank you for clearing that up. I, th I, I, I There's nothing I can do to expand or, or perfect upon it. So that was great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so from there, I, I'm sorry, I sort of messed up your order, but you can pick it up from wherever you intended to, to start and, and give, give the introduction as you like, because we, I, I know that this show is going to be partly historic, uh, you know, and then there's going to be some things that are historic, but also, you know, maybe a little bit more fanciful, maybe, maybe a little bit more fun, but still historic in nature. And, and you're going to weave them together as the storyteller that you are. I'll do my best. Yeah. Uh, so. Let me pull this up here. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think when we're talking about uh, the topic of the show today, which is the migration of various Iranic peoples into Europe, uh, we have to clarify a couple of things. One of them has to do with the story that I just told about the discovery of Indo-European. We are not just talking about, or I'm not just talking about that original common ancestor that proto-Indo-European here. That's pretty well established. A lot of people, even lay people, are well aware of the Indo-European language family. So when we're talking about Iranic migrations, it's not some broad, generic, we're talking about the Indo, proto-Indo-Europeans. No, no, no. That was uh, three, 4,000 years uh, BC. What I'm going to be talking about today is much, much later long after these groups had separated from each other and had become distinct groups already. So if you're talking about early Indo-European history, it doesn't make sense to call any of it Iranic or Germanic. There was no, it was just one group, right? Uh, however, by the time you get to historical, the historical era uh, from 1000 BC onward, 
now these groups have definitely separated from each other and have become distinct Germanics, Italics, Celtics, Slavic, Indo-Iranians, and they have geographically separated from each other and culturally to some degree separated from each other. After that, the Indo-Iranian group, some of them anyway, uh, the groups that I'll be talking about today, actually migrated westward again into Europe, where some of the other um, their uh, brothers from the past had already migrated, like the Germans and the Italics, they've been there quite, quite a while. So the claim here is, is, again, to be clear, not simply that all these groups had a common origin, that's well known. The claim that's less well known is that after they had separated, the Iranics went into Europe again. And specifically when I'm talking about the Iranics, let me define that term. Uh, people aren't used to hearing the word Iranic as opposed to, let's say, Iranian. Sure. So Iranian is, is now used just for uh, the people of the country, the nation state of Iran. And Iranic are people who are ethno-linguistically uh, Iranian but don't live in that country. And um, a lot of people don't even know that there is such a group, but there, there is today. And historically, there has been uh, many groups that are now sort of baked into other populations, uh, including European populations. So it's very similar to uh, giving an example that people are more familiar with, maybe German versus Germanic, right? So uh, uh, the English are uh, English language is a Germanic language, yep. but it's not Germany, right? Right. Well, in the same way, you know, today uh, the Tajiks of Afghanistan or Tajikistan are Iranic, but they're not part of Iran. Correct. And historically, there have been many Iranic peoples, some of whom no longer exist. They were, like I said, uh, leaked into other populations like the Slavs and the Germans and so on and so forth. And a few of them do exist, and we'll get to, the, to that to them at the end. They're, they're still around, and they're still distinct, and they still call themselves, or well, we'll get to that later. <clears throat> so, specifically, who are these Iranic groups that, that migrated back into Europe uh, all the way? And we're not just talking about the Balkans or Eastern Europe, by the way, uh, or even Central Europe, but as far as Western Europe, as far as Gaul, which is France, and a few of them even to Britain, uh, Scotland and Ireland, in fact. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So these, these groups include uh, the Scythians, sometimes called the Saka. We, met, we talked about them in the previous interview. Uh, the Sarmatians, also the Alans or Alans, uh, the Rocks Alans, a subcategory. Another group is the Yazikis. Uh, if you're worried about pronunciation, don't worry, because any pronunciation we have today is, is going to be vastly different than probably how they refer to themselves, so let's not even try. Right. The AORC, uh, the Jazz, J-A-S-Z, and similar ethno-linguistically, culturally Iranian or Aryan, quote-unquote, tribes. Uh, so my contention is that seldom has the influence of a, a culture on another been so vast multifaceted and well-documented within the halls of, you know, specialist academia, while at the same time being so utterly unknown among the general public. <laughs> uh, I would submit for largely political reasons uh, these days. 
So, when did this happen? Now, by the way, Jeff, uh, if you're unclear about anything or anything pops into your head, uh, cut me off at any moment. Oh, I, I sure will. That's why the camera's here, so you can see me raise my hand or whatever. But <laughs> I, 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 I haven't yet, because you're doing a great job, and I, I you know, I, there's, you know, I... I I will. I, if I feel like I have anything to add or if I have a question, but uh, no, I, I think you I've are. I've been deeply universed in this stuff over the last couple of years, and I forget that it's a, a lot of it is new information, and, uh, and I, I need to be very clear. So when did this happen? Uh, some of your listeners may have heard of the great migrations that happened during the decline and fall of the Western Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, the so-called barbarian invasions from the north. That came in and finally put an end to Western Rome. Obviously, it wasn't the end of Rome entirely because Rome became Byzantium and, and went on in another form. But Western Rome, Rome itself, fell. And most people, I think, would associate those barbaric um, invasions, migrations, a combination of two from the north, as being mostly Germanic peoples. Um, the truth is, some of them were not Germanic. Some of those migration migrants or invaders were Iranic, uh, and they included the Sarmatians. Uh, the fact, uh, which is uncontested and uncontroversial within academia among historians, anthropologists, nevertheless hidden uh, by using their specific tribal names and omitting their broader Iranic identity. That, you know, when you say uh, the Roxalans or the Alans. People don't realize those are Iranic peoples. And I, I, you know, a lot of people like me from my ethnicity think that that's, that's by design. <laughs> Whereas with the Goths or the Ostrogoths, they do use the specific names, but they also say these are broadly Germanic peoples. When it comes to the Sarmatians and the Alans, they never say these are broadly Iranic peoples. <laughs> no, that's for sure. My first yeah. introduction to the Alans, to be frank, was, was the... I thought they were basically like, you know, tall, blonde hair, blue eye Russians or, you know, Finnish peoples. That, that... Well, well, let me complicate the situation. So if we're, not talking about, yeah, if we're not talking about what do they look like, you know, typically, uh, they were very close to the Germans. <laughs> uh, so these are not the Persians who are darker, uh, you know, because they've been mixing with Mes- Mesopotamians for 3,000 years. So I myself, I'm a Persian, I'm, I'm darker skinned. You know, so I don't really look like these people. Uh, these people actually are North Iranians. Let me give you an example that'll make sense. In the Iranic world, just like in the European world to the West, um, generally the further north you go, the lighter skinned people are. And this might have to do with climate, obviously, over the years. Sure. So just like in the European world, uh, you know, a Swede and a, and a Southern Italian um don't uh, look exactly the same. There's shades of difference between skin color and eye color and hair color on the whole. Same thing in the Iranian world. If in the South Iranian world, the Persians and the Medes that we know of from uh, Greek history and the Bible and so on and so forth, in Mesopotamia and in Iran, are darker skinned, both for climatic reasons and also because they have been living with uh, much older and more civilized Mesopotamian peoples for thousands of years. The ones to the north of them, what is now Eurasia, Russia, uh, from what we can tell, from the mummies we found phenotypically, are almost indistinguishable from their German cousins. So these are, uh, and again, uh, they're not all blonde, of course. Uh, Even today, when we go to Sweden, I think the majority are still not blonde. 
Sure, that's kind of the extreme example I'm using on the right a northwest corner of the world. Well, the world's most famous Aryan was wasn't even close to blonde or tall or blue eyed. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're talking about that guy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so phenotypically, they're Europoid, but there's also great variation. So a Scythian from further east may even have Turkic Mongol features, sure. and a Scythian. In, 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 so we got to remember that these are very loosely defined linguistic groups. They are these are pastoral people. These are um, uh, an equestrian, uh, horse-obsessed people that are constantly on the move. And, uh, and, and they're tribes that are melting in and out of each other with the names changing, you know, every century or two. So an Allen and a Rock Salon may uh, mean something to a historian today in terms of distinguishing them from each other, those, those two terms. But for, for themselves, they may have, actually, may have actually been one people. Right. right? Uh, so we just have to realize it's it's sort of like the North American Indians, in in the sense that they're very highly mobile, right? Except they have horses, so they're even more mobile. And uh, it's not a, a race the way we would define it today. It's a it's a linguistic group, uh, it's a clan, it's a tribe, and they're constantly forming alliances with each other. And they're falling in and out of alliances with each other. One day they may be uh, best of friends, and tomorrow they may be fighting. Everything is professional wrestling, with with with, yeah. with procreation. <laughs> yeah, it could be. That's a good example. So it's it's people salad, just just like most every place else. It's people salad, but over a long span of time, for all of the reasons that one might think in Game of Thrones or or you know anything else. That's right. So, you know, I believe that the oversight in not mentioning the word ironic, um, at least not in the title of anything, is not an accident. Uh, I think there's a, a lot of us believe that it's, it's a little bit of a, has to do with current politics, since Iran is not uh, uh, the favorite country of the West these days, that um, that applies to even trying to erase it from history. And we can even take that a step further. We won't here, but I think that anybody who is an intelligent listener can probably figure out the, 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 the next step dealing with, uh, you know, current protectionism and xenophobia as to why it may be, you know, absolutely. convenient yeah. to, to forget the, the actual origin. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say a couple of words about that, too, because there's been a lot, you know, this can't be proven, but there's been a lot written about this. What I'm saying is not new. It may be new to your listeners, but... Uh, for people from India, from Iran, and that part of the world, this is uh, uh, this is you know almost like a accepted dogma. <laughs> but this is all the British. <laughs> the British are behind all this. You know, they're trying to erase us from history, so and so forth. There's actually a little bit of truth to that. You see, what happened is that when the British uh, colonized India, India had for the previous uh, several hundred years been a Persianate uh, culture. It was ruled by uh, linguistically and culturally, although not ethnically, uh, Persian dynasty, the Mughals. And it, it had a largely Persianate uh, literature and, and high culture. And the British were uh, a little bit concerned about that. And they really went out of their way in the 19th century to erase anything Persian or Iranian because they wanted to be the top dog now. They wanted to be the new colonizer and they didn't want any memory of the previous colonizer. Right. 
And that makes some sense. Whereas if you look at historiography of Europe prior to the British invasion of, uh, of India, uh, Persia or Iran was actually uh, always looked at with great esteem. And there, there wasn't anything negative. This really, it's only in the last 200 years that in the Anglosphere, this, uh, this sort of demonization uh, on the one hand or just completely ignoring of and, and diminishing uh, of, of anything Persian has occurred, not so much in Germany, not so much in France, mostly in the Anglosphere, the English-speaking world. It's a little side note is that, you know, ever since Rome fell, sort of fell, completely fell, everybody sort of wants to be the new Rome, except none of them actually learned one of the lessons of Rome, which Rome sort of borrowed from the Greeks before them, was that you don't crush everyone and erase them. You sort of let them have their way and just slowly insinuate your names onto it. So it's basically the same stuff, but you're it's assimilation. Everyone sort of feels you know, eventually gets a pride. I mean, people wanted to be Roman citizens. Uh, you know, I don't think that any, you know, very few people that were uh, subjugated to the, to the British colonies wanted to be British citizens, you know, unless it was for strictly uh, economic reasons. But, uh, you know, the, that's why the Roman Empire is, you know, sort of lasted longer. I mean, there's other reasons too. I don't want to oversimplify yeah. it, but... Uh, that, Appropriation, yeah. You have to make people feel a part of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, you know, the argument of, of this upcoming book and documentary project, which is an argument well known to thousands of scholars, historians, uh, to linguists, or anthropologists, um, and then much of what we think of as medieval, feudal European culture is in fact at least partially ironic. And that may sound like, uh, you know, you say that to someone who's not well versed in this stuff, and they think you're talking about how the moon is made from cheese, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, like you're some crazy you know, lunatic standing on the street corner. But in fact, again, if anyone looks this stuff up, it's not controversial within the field of specialists uh, within academia. It just somehow doesn't percolate to the to the History Channel shows and to the Discovery Channel shows and these sorts of um, mass media. Uh, popularizers of, of history. So it hasn't so far. So I hope to change that in the near future. We'll see. I hope to, if I may, just a couple of like, you know, sort of not analogies, but uh, but similar circumstances that people accept without question. And, and it's, and it's, it's a thematically, it's sort of similar, but the word Cossack comes from Kazakh, Kazakhstan. Nobody thinks, everyone thinks Kazakhs were the guys with the big fez hats and the curvy swords and very, very European. Well, but you think of Kazakh, you think of Kazakhstan. You don't think of that at all. The word assassin probably came from Hashashim, which, you know, it, you know, it was, well, Iranic, Arabian, you know, in that part of the world, which is, you know, assassin could be anyone, but, you know, when we think of assassin, we think of, you know, James Bond or, or Gal Gadot or whatever. No, they were actually, they were actually Muslim fundamentalists. <laughs> well, we'll get into it, but perhaps a little more esoteric than, than, than the fundamentalists, but it was, a, it, was a, it was definitely a cult. Um, yeah, I'll give you another couple of examples uh, since you uh, brought up uh, how words are, uh, take on different connotations. In other words, Slav uh, originally uh, was slave. Yep. <laughs> uh, the word Berber, uh, which are a North African people, and, uh, and Barbar or Barbarian are related. Mm -hmm. Not exactly, you know, um, uh, uh, flattering. Right. 
And, and technically, I was corrected that, that Barbara actually means not Greek, which was the same thing as basically barbarian. <laughs> right. And chemistry is from Al Alchemir. Yeah. Well, whether it had a negative connotation or not is controversial. Some some have you know made the point that you make that it simply is it's not a value judgment. It simply means we don't understand it. Others say no, no, it means both things. They were kind of making fun of it too. Like these people sound like like we all do. If something sounds different than us, then then it almost automatically uh, think of uh, our junior high or middle school years. Right. Yeah, well, the the, the, the <laughs> point is. Us, this point is that there's people that there's words that folks use in their everyday language right now that came from something that they probably wouldn't associate with it, and it, oh. it's it's just the thought, it's just the same thought jump. It's it's the same it's the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, and so uh, the argument of, of my upcoming project will be that the influence, uh, this influence of these erotic peoples includes not only material culture, uh, such as you know we'll get into it, but uh, Chainmail, uh, armor, uh, equestrian, knightly lifestyle, but also significant elements of a lot of medieval romances uh, and legends and literature and folk tales, including uh, the biggest one, of course, being the Arthurian cycle, uh, as well as romances like Tristan and Isolt, which uh, most people, when they think of Europe, there's nothing more European than that. And, and my argument will be that that actually comes from the Parthian story. Older than that, it was brought there by the Alans. So, folks, if you haven't figured it out now, we are now transitioning from pure history and conversation to pure history and sort of, sort of, sort of the fun stuff I was alluding to your king, your King Arthur and whatnot. Yeah. So, uh, if they haven't figured it out on their own, I've now made it clear. But please continue. Absolutely. Uh, so, that's this by some water. So the homeland uh, of these uh, this subgroup of northern Iranian peoples is the Pontic Steppe that I mentioned before. People don't don't know where that is. It's Ukraine. It's today's Ukraine and Russia, north of the Black Sea, between the Black Sea and a little bit further west to the Caspian. So also Georgia, um, uh, Belarusish, or sort of that whole area. That's right. Yeah, that's the that's the Caucasus. So, uh, depending, you know, because again, these are these are pastoral people, so they, they certainly didn't live within uh, uh, fixed boundaries. But that general area, uh, including the, 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 the Caucasus, between the Black, if somebody pulls out a map or a globe, they'll see for themselves, basically between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, or to the north of that. Yeah, there were there were there were a bunch of sort of sort of famous kings in the past named Pontus, and I believe that they were kings of what's now Phil Philpot, which was also where the Golden Fleece was. I might or, or sort of around well, that. I, I, look, I, you're you're talking about something slightly different but related. Okay, I think. Uh, look, there, there in in Iranian history, there was such a thing called the Parthian. Empire, the yep. Parthian dynasty, which fought, I think that's what you're talking about. So let me say a couple words about that since you brought it up. So this was the dynasty or the Iranian Empire that fought the early Romans, the early Roman Republic and the, and the Rome, early Roman Empire. And in fact, that dynasty of Iran, that ruling class of Iran, were North Iranians, very, very similar ethnically, culturally, uh, to these uh, Alans and Sarmatians who migrated later into Europe. So, in fact, um, 
So during that time, you could say all the way from Iran itself through Western Europe, it was one Iranic culture complex to the north of the Mediterranean, right? To the south, it's, it's still Rome and Byzantium later. So <clears throat> let me just stop uh, here. <clears throat> the You need a minute to clear your throat? Existence of the sorry, go ahead. Do you need a minute to clear your throat or are you okay? No, I just had to get some water. Okay. So very few individuals again uh, think of these uh, Western uh, these northern barbarian invasions as anything other than Germans. In fact, sometimes they've been called Eastern Germans or Ostrogoths. But in fact today we know that they were many of them, although there were Ostrogoths and Eastern Germans uh, as a part of that, there were also many Sarmatians. So we talked about what they look like. The Bosporan Kingdom that you mentioned is essentially a hybrid Greco-Iranian um, kingdom, you could say, if you know the, the story of the Poison King and Mithridates. Mm -hmm. Mithridates is, is uh, an Iranian term. It, it, that's actually the Greek version of it. The Iranian term is Merdod, is the real name. Um, has to do with Mithra, the god Mithra. God-given is what it really means. Oh. So they they created a, a hybrid kingdom that was partially Iranic and partially Greek. In fact, Mithridates the Great, um, or the Sixth, Mithridates Pontus, the Poison King, famously uh, traced his ancestors both to Darius the Great and Cyrus the Great on the one hand, and Alexander the Great on the other. And uh, believe it or not, he fought... A lot of people today think of Greco-Roman civilization on one hand, and then Iranian-Persian civilization as the enemy on the in the east. But in fact, during this era, he fought on behalf of what he considered Greco-Iranian civilization against an upstart Rome. <laughs> right. So it's amazing how uh, you know our understanding of of alliances is not necessarily uh, correct, uh, at least not. Uh, throughout all of history. There, are, uh, uh, there was uh, a good several centuries from the time of Alexander to the rise of the Sasanians in Persia, where you could say that the Greeks and the Persians had become one unified culture. And in fact, Nietzsche famously says that he would have much preferred if the Persians had successfully and permanently conquered Greece, as opposed to the Romans of all people, he, he says, and I'm paraphrasing it. Sure. Uh, you know, folks, I want you to take a footnote into Mithridates or Pontus, the Poison King. I don't think we're going to talk about it here, but look it up yourself. It's a it's a ironic story. And it, it, honestly, you could probably find something on it that will take less than five minutes. But um, it, it'll be uh, worth your time. I recommend it as well. Yeah, yeah. that's a whole other story. And there's there's actually been a few documentaries on it. You can, they can probably look it up on YouTube as well. So... Did I cut you off? No, 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 no. I was I cut you off actually with the little footnote, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to take. I didn't want to go into that side story because it is <laughs> it is its own thing. Absolutely. So uh, let me let's now talk about some of these groups, uh, ironic groups, and where they went in Europe and what happened to them. So first of all, the the nearest part of Europe, <laughs> the near west, right. to the Iranians are, is the Balkans. Right? So let's talk about the Serb and Croatians and Bulgarians. The presence of Iranic populations in these populations has been well documented now for a long time. There is little doubt 
uh, these uh, what were former Yugoslav populations uh, have some degree of Iranic or Aryan admixture, uh, in addition to the Slavic, which is, um, you know, everyone knows about that. From about a thousand years uh, ago, uh, that region was inhabited by Iranic Sarmatians specifically from their north and their west, uh, north of the Black Sea there. Interestingly, uh, in fact, uh, just recently I read an article that uh, really surprised me. A group of Bulgarian researchers, uh, they concluded an extensive sort of fact-finding anthropological uh, trip to Iran, and they came back uh, with a unanimous conclusion that Bulgarians have Iranian ancestry. Um, this was, uh, it was based on genetic, historical, linguistic, uh, anthropologic, uh, folkloric, even some, you know, art history. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, the great paper, uh, I think, uh, that they wrote is called the, uh, I, I wrote this note down for myself, it's called The Common Origin of Croats, Serbs, and Jats by Dr. Samara Boss. And that was uh, the conclusion. Then there's uh, another group. So, so, so the Serbs and the Croats and, and the Balkans, that's, that's pretty well known and fairly uncontroversial. There's a, a group of, uh, of these Iranics called the Aorsi, A-O-R-S-I. They're known to the Greek sources um, uh, as Aorsoi. I'm not sure exactly how they would have pronounced it. They're an ancient Iranian people, um, a subcategory of the Sarmatians. Um, they played a major role uh, in events from 1st century BC, 1st century AD. And uh, the term, the word Aorsi is generally linked to the Avestan. Avestan is an ancient Iranian language, the language in which the, the, the hymns of Zarathustra and the holy books of Zoroastrianism were written, by the way. Oh, cool. Uh, it's generally linked to the Avestan Aorusa and the Ossetic Urs, or Ors, meaning um, light or shining or brilliant. Um, what was the root they, word? I'm sorry for that. So the root of that is a, is an Avestan term called Aorusa. Aorusa. Yeah. And that's where, you know, all these terms get corrupted from one language to another. And corrupted, by the way, is a linguistic term. <laughs> it, it doesn't have a negative connotation. It simply means changed. Right, right, right. Then there is the, the jazz, again, uh, it's spelled J-A-S-Z. I'm not sure if you, you put the emphasis on the Z or the S. Who went further into Central Europe to Hungary. And were are still a documented distinct population in regions of Hungary till the 19th century. Uh, in fact, even today, many Hungarian place names still uh, are named after them. And if people want to look into the, the jazz, uh, uh, which comes from, in, in Persian, it's Yaz with the Y, but, it, you know, the J is silent. Then there's the uh, much larger group called the Alans, or Alans, who went much, much further and had a, a, a longer lasting, I would say, influence in Europe. The name Alania stems from the old Iranian root uh, Aryana, so Alan and Aran, the L and R are interchangeable. Okay. Uh, again, a derivative of the Indo-Iranian root Arya, uh, mm -hmm. or Aryan. And again, it's cognate with this name of Iran, Aaron or Iran. Uh, so 
Alan in Iran, or again, uh, cognates of the same word again, Aryan, stems from the old Persian Aryanum. And these people originally had a kingdom for themselves in what is now somewhere around, uh, you mentioned the area, Dagestan, Chechnya, uh, parts of Russia on the Black Sea. There was such a thing as the medieval Alonic kingdom. In fact, uh, just recently I posted a picture on, on the Facebook group of one of the oldest churches in Russia. Um, and uh, it's an Alonic church. And that kingdom was attacked in the 12th century, uh, 12th, 13th centuries, by Timurid and Mongol Turkic peoples from the east. But that church still survives, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful church, and uh, to this day, uh, it's known as uh, the Alonic Church, one of the oldest churches in, in what is now Russia. So these Alans were pushed, you could say, from the east by a further Turco-Mongol wave of uh, invaders, migrants, you could call them, and were pushed further and further west, first into Eastern Europe and Central Europe, and eventually they got as far as Gaul or France. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, in France, certain cities like Alancourt or Alancourt or Alanville, Alanville, uh, carrying their name, um, and some of them went across the Pyrenees into northern Spain, or what is now Catalonia, uh, which, in fact, even the word Catalonia uh, is a derivative of Goth Alonia. Hmm. Remember I was mentioning that along with those German invaders of the Roman Empire, were these Iranic invaders? Well, they rode together, and they rode, uh, they, they, when they got to Spain, um, they were basically one group. And so Goth Alonia is an alliance of these Germanic Goths and these Iranic Alans, or Alans. In Hungary, there's uh, even a, a region inhabited by descendants of the Alans known as Jazbereni. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. Uh, uh, again, in hung Hungary, the Alans were called the Yaz or the Jazz. And it, it still celebrates, Hungary still celebrates some of their traditions, such as the ceremonial, something called the blowing of the ninth century horn. <laughs> So even to this day, there's, you know, Hungarian um, festivals or, you know, uh, traditions that go back uh, to these uh, Alonic peoples. Well, was Attila, uh, I mean, probably the most famous Hun, was uh, Attila uh, Iranic? Oh, no, no, that, not at all. Attila and the Huns are Mongoloid Turkic peoples. peoples. Those are the peoples from, from basically what is now Mongolia who pushed the Alans west from their east right that's an entirely different group uh, although uh, again uh, things are complicated because <laughs> there were times where some of the islands uh, who are ironic uh, and 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 the huns who are turkic and mongol did actually ally with each other oftentimes <laughs> so it's complicated but they're they're vastly different groups right. in fact it's that it's that mongol turkic push from their east that pushed these ironic islands further west gotcha yeah. People, there's always people salad, but uh, Attila the Hun, different group. Different group, entirely different group, culturally, linguistically, uh, different group. 
Perfect. Now, there's another group, uh, again, uh, all of these sort of subcategories of the Sarmatians, right, uh, called the Ianzikis. That's I-A-Z-Y-G-E-S. And they appear to have ruled over some, um, some Germanic, ruled over some Germanic, Celtic, and Dacian, Dacian populations um, to the north of what is now uh, modern Budapest. And uh, in many of these uh, Iazigi knights, uh, it was many of these Iazigi knights who were transported, and we know this from history, it's actually part of Roman written history, transported to Britain by the Roman legions. The Romans fought these people constantly on the border of their empires. And when they would defeat them, you know, they found that they're very good warriors. Uh, they're solid warriors. They're, they have, you know, chainmail armor. They're, they're, they're uh, highly skilled. They're brave. And so they would use them. And they, very famously, the Romans transport about 18,000 Iaziki, Iranic knights, to Britain, uh, Roman Britain, um, what is now Northern England, to man uh, Hadrian's Wall which is, you know about Hadrian's Wall, yeah, sure. to, to keep out uh, the, the uh, British people to the north of that. And those, those Iazigi Iranic knights settled in Britain. And uh, you might think, well, 18,000 isn't a very large population. That's true. But actually, if you consider the population of that region at that time, we're talking about second, third century here, it was a significant portion of the population. Well, a, a thousand soldiers was a huge army in what we call Britain now in, in that time. I mean, if you if you had 60 guys, you could run roughshod over, over you know, large yeah, parts of a country. Armored, these were armored knights. And, and keep in mind, again, the contention here is, and, and what people need to sort of realize, whether they have heard it before, whether it sounds strange to them or not, that was not normal in Northern Britain. This is something that these Iranic peoples brought with them. In fact, even the way of dress, and we'll get to that later, was influenced. Uh, prior to that, it was they looked very much, you know, they, they dressed in togas and so on and so forth, at least in the Roman region, regions. But what we call the, the medieval European look was largely influenced by these Alonic, Yazidi, Sarmatian, uh, Iranic peoples. In fact, I'll mention recently there have been genetic, now we have genetics. So we no longer have to rely simply on finding an arrow here, an artifact there, you know, or a linguistic similarity or a bit of tantalizing, you know, uh, reference in some sort of literary text. We now have genetics. And recent genetic tests have shown uh, the, that certain townships in northern England clearly have erotic genes and haplogroups. <laughs> um, and clearly identifiable to this day. Uh, now, now that we know, you know who these people were, uh, or what they were called, and where they went, I want to also say a couple of words about, you know, what they contributed. In the Slavic world, in Russia, of course, the state of Iranic studies is quite advanced, much more so than here. If you go to Russia and the Soviet Union before that, uh, there are libraries of archaeology and uh, investigations done. And that makes total sense because the Russians clearly see uh, themselves as descendants, um, very literally, of these, uh, of these peoples um, from the earliest times. 
they realize not just genetically but culturally that this Iranian component is a major part along with the Slavic part, you know, the Tartars, the Vikings, so on, that were added to this layer uh, cake a little bit later. Sure. In fact, I, I saw something in the news recently. It's not necessarily uh, uh, good news. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but <laughs> the new Russian nuclear missile is called the Sarmat, and they named it after the Sarmatians. Swell. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't do it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, so again, if you go to the, the Russian uh, sphere of the world, formerly the Soviet, uh, this stuff is quite well known, much more so than it is uh, in the West. Now, uh, as far as the material culture, chainmail armor was something that they, these Sarmatians brought to Europe with them. And, you know, Europeans already in Lebanon certainly had armor, the Persians to the south had armor, uh, but it was mostly... Uh, a different type of armor wasn't as fluid or easy to move in as chainmail. Right. It was mostly scale armor. Chainmail uh, gave you a, a level of mobility uh, that allowed uh, these people to basically live in their armor on their horses, whereas the Romans and, and the southern Iranian Persians, they would have scale armor, which is very, very heavy. And once you put it on, you, you know, uh, imagine the, the medieval knight. Um, you could go for you know, one run and then you were done. <laughs> right. People had to help you to take those things off. Another bit of material culture that is ironic in origin that also made its way to Europe through these people is trousers, pants. Um, uh, the Scythian Iranians and Sarmatians are known, as far as we know so far, to be probably the oldest people who wore pants regularly. Baggy trousers, the kind that, you know, Kurdish people wear even today or Afghan Tajiks and Tajiks were even today, you know, you've seen the baggy trousers, pretty much the same thing. The reason for that is they lived on their horses. Whereas most of the rest of the world, you know, the Romans and, and even the Indians, so on and so forth, were some variation of the toga. The name Alan, uh, you know, the, the, the boy's name, or in French, Alain, comes from the Alonic peoples. Uh, griffins, you know, if you go to cathedrals in Europe, you often see these gargoyle type things. Right. Yeah, the eagle head, the uh, lion body. Yeah, it's a hybrid creature. Um, uh, we think mythological, who knows, maybe it existed. Right, you never know. <laughs> exactly, sure. I hope it existed. This is Garden of Doom. We accept that they they, they, right. they exist, yes. So the griffins are, are uh, a motif that was brought in by these Sarmatians. Another big one is dragons. Now, dragons were, dragon was actually the emblem of these Sarmatians and the Scythians. But for a couple of reasons, historians think. One, because the chainmail that they wore and oftentimes draped in green cloth made them look when they're attacking you like a giant lizard thing. Uh, the other one was that they, they actually had a banner. Uh, I forget what the, this type of banner or flag is actually called. It has a name. But something like a wind chime, almost, a flag that you carry with you that uh, the wind blows up um, as you as you are riding. And it was a dragon banner. And so the Scythians are now thought by many historians to have carried this dragon um, insignia, uh, this motif, uh, as far west as, as Europe, and also as far east as China. There's arguments that the dragon, uh, which is so common in Chinese art and mythology, 
also introduced to them in the East by, by these same Scythians. As people got around. It's interesting. We know. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the, the myth of St. George who slayed the dragon was about, you know, uh, you know, a metaphor for Christians slaying something non-Christian, which, you know. Uh, exactly right. In fact, in fact, I'm glad you brought that up because there's some arguments, again, this is sort of conjecture here, and it has to be because there's no way to prove this, right? But there's uh, arguments among historians that they were talking about the Scythian, the dragon represented these invading Scythians. In fact, I'll tell you, um, in the southern Iranian Persian culture, in the Shahnameh, which is sort of our Odyssey and Iliad combined, there's lots of references to Rostam fighting the dragon. Right. And the dragon, uh, a lot of um, uh, people who have studied um, the Shahnameh in depth, uh, they believe it's also a, a reference to these same northern Iranic barbarians. And as I think back, uh, you know, I'm certainly no expert, but we, an expert on these things, but I did a show on dragons and we did some research on that. And, you know, in doing the show, you become exposed to a lot of things. And serpents were used a lot, uh, flying serpents, hydra, leviathan, which has been, you know, interpreted to be a sea dragon-like. But the word dragon di didn't really exist. Uh, you know, you might have had a, you know, the Midgard serpent or, you know, different versions of, of serpent or some sort of uh, creature that could be considered like a dragon, but the, the, the term dragon did come later. Yeah. In fact, if you look at there, there are medieval European, early medieval European um, manuscripts and illustrations within those manuscripts that depict these Sarmatians and they depict them sometimes carrying that dragon banner. Um, again, I can't think of the name for that type of a flag, but it's almost, think of a kite. You know? I was thinking of a kite. I was actually thinking of like those at the airport, those sort of wind-catching uh, orange. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's right. You know the ones you see at you know, car dealerships? Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> A little less, a little less scary there. Uh, a little less scary, yeah, yeah. So there's actual medieval European manuscripts that depict these people are carrying that dragon banner. That is, and that's there's really cool. Well, there's also the most famous house of Dracul, which was in the the Carpathians, which is very much within this region where uh, Iranic peoples uh, settled the main fact rule, and that's a uh, you know our oh, friend Vlad uh, Teshpesh or whatever his last name was. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a friend named Drago, and I always tease him, you know, that, uh, that that's, a, that's a Sarmatian erotic term. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, then um, there's some influence on architecture. So we think of Gothic architecture as sort of being purely European, but in fact, it's a combination of Roman, Romanesque, Sasanian, Persian architecture. And uh, some, and of course, they added quite a lot to it. And just because there's influence doesn't mean that it's, you know, taken. Uh, uh, whole cloth right. uh, influence is, is important, but of course each culture adds to it and makes it their own, as we saw in the flowering of Gothic architecture from the you know, 11th, 12th centuries onward in Europe. So some of the elements of Gothic architecture that uh, are theorized by a lot of art historians, particularly Arthur Upham Pope and Roman Gershman, who argue that the apse, uh, I don't know if um, Everyone is familiar with that term. It's an architectural term. It's a semicircular recess covered with a hemispherical vault or uh, dome within a cathedral. The apse, the wood vaulting that you see in Gothic architecture, uh, the pointed arch, uh, and even the flying buttress, which is so 
typically associated with, you know, the high Gothic architecture of Europe. All of these have precedence in Sasanian Persian architecture. And the argument of people like Pope and Gershman, Gersh, Gershman, Gershman, I'm sorry, Roman Gershman, is that uh, a lot of these elements, uh, how do they make it to Europe from Sasanian Iran? Not through Rome, per se. Some of it did, but that was more of a barrier than a, than a conduit, but through these North Iranians, who, after all, shared exactly the same culture complex as the Parthians who ruled Iran at the same time. So tell, then, me, uh, tell me about King Arthur. Give me the King Arthur. I want fun. Uh, so, yeah, so that's the <laughs> next thing is the big thing uh, culturally, other than you know material culture and architecture, is King Arthur. There was a lot of historians over the years have made the connection to some of these Sarmatian stories, but the big the the group the, the the two authors that pulled it together were Middleton and Malcor with a extraordinary book. Um, uh, a seminal work uh, in the field, still the minority opinion, but nevertheless, uh, it, it's so scholarly that it now really had to be taken seriously. Um, uh, argue that much of the Arthurian cycle of stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, and Lancelot and Guinevere, and many of those stories are actually uh, stories of folklore brought by the Sarmatian Yazigi Iranic knights um, to Britain, to France, which mixed with pre-existing Celtic lore. So, for example, some of the stories like Lady in the Lake, that, that is, doesn't seem to have any Iranic precedent. It seems to be purely Celtic. On the other hand, stories like uh, elements like the, the sword and the stone are absolutely Iranic. In fact, a discovery was made that kind of revolutionized the field of the Nart sagas. If we geographically go back now to the Caucasus, where these people kind of originated, they have a, these are North Iranic peoples and Caucasian people, Caucasian meaning from the Caucasus, right? <laughs> Not broadly speaking. That's another one of those words that has multiple meanings. It sure does. Right. Um, uh, these people uh, have a series of folk tales that were finally written uh, down uh, in the 19th century, but had been oral tradition for many, many centuries and perhaps millennia, called the Narch Sagas. And when this was discovered and written, people were just flabbergasted how similar it was to many of the elements of the, of the Arthurian cycle. And now the more a lot of people went to Britain, <laughs> had a kingdom in Gaul and Spain and all over Europe, it makes total sense that they would have brought some of this folklore with them. Of course. But mixed, mixed again, it's not all of it. And so the theory, and I'm very quickly, I, I mentioned it briefly in our previous conversation too, if people are interested in really delving into it, I would highly recommend buying a book called From Scythia to Camelot by Littleton and Malcor, the, the late great scholar Littleton and uh, Dr. Malcor as well. And their argument is not that King Arthur was Iranic or Iranian or Sarmatian. Their argument is King Arthur was actually a Roman, but he is, uh, to the extent that there is a historic figure that these myths were wrapped around, this folklore was wrapped around, that the knights were Sarmatians. Uh, and in fact, uh, Dr. Malcor added uh, a, a very crucial piece to this argument that even the word Lancelot is from 
Allen of Lot, <laughs> Lot being a region in France. And uh, again, it's a, a extraordinarily scholarly and well-wrought sort of argument. And again, I, anyone who's interested in, in, in following up on that, from Scythia to Camelot by Littleton and Malcor, there was even a movie recently, you know, every couple of few years, there's a King Arthur movie somewhere. Sure. Uh, either for TV or, or theatrical. Public domain. And in, in the, one of the most recent movies, they actually, they, they actually use the theory. They use the Sarmatian theory, it's called. Uh, but again, my, my pet peeve is they never use the word ironic. They're bearing it with words like, who the hell knows what a Sarmatian is, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's safer. It's more marketable, it's I suppose. Safer, yeah. Which, mo- which movie? Yeah. What's, what's the movie called? If it was a Germanic subgroup, they would say it's a Germanic group. You know, when it comes mm-hmm. to Iran, they, they leave that out. Uh, but, uh, you know, but if, if people go and look up Sarmatian, they will see that it's an Iranic group. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm not sure too many people will go from the theater to, to you know, Wikipedia. But uh, <laughs> what was the movie called? Go ahead. What was the movie called? I forget what it's called. It's, it came out in two thousand four or five. There's a, I, I can link it to you afterward. It's okay. it's one of the big Arthurian movies, uh, second to the last that came out. But they is, very famously the beginning um, of the film. You know, sometimes there's a a credit that gives you a little explanation of just the setting and such, and they absolutely use the. Sarmatian theory. Was it, the, the, was it the one with Clive they Owen? They never explained who the Sarmatians are. What's that? Was it the one with Clive Owen as the star? Uh, what year did that come out? Uh, probably around there. Around the early yeah. aughts. Uh, early aughts, that's what it was, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll text it to you after after the fact. Okay. Uh, so that's the, the huge one. Uh, because, you know, what is more identified with uh, British culture and French culture and medieval European culture than the Arthurian stories. And you can imagine the ruckus is caused to, to say that at least a chunk of it, at least a significant portion of these stories were from these ironic peoples. And well, it really shouldn't, right? you know, it really shouldn't. I mean, I know why it does, but I mean, right now, the, the, the legends as we know it have so much that you have Morgana Le Fay and Lancelot, which are clearly, you know, French names, you know, in Britain. And of course, France and Britain share so much of their history that nobody thinks twice about it. But, you know, these some of these characters were brought in later, you know, uh, depending on who you believe on the origin. So, you know, the fact that there are other influences uh, or other origins should not surprise us all. And keep in mind the time frame we're talking about here, uh, Jeff. We're talking about these people, these Iranic peoples were in Britain and in France, and they settled and they're still there. They just mixed with the, with the local population. They're baked in, you could say. Uh, from around two, 200 BC onward. So they were there long before the time that the Arthurian cycle was organized in any meaningful way. Right. Uh, into you know, what we call the Arthurian cycle, um, and certainly long before the Middle Ages. And so there was plenty of time for these stories to percolate and mix with each other. And again, I- I'm just giving you the, the general gist of it, but it's extraordinarily well argued, you know, point by point, region by region, name by name, writer by writer, but in this uh, great book that I can't 
recommend enough, I'll say the third time, <laughs> from Scythia to Camelot. And then there's another one, uh, Jeff, uh, another uh, is stepping outside the, the Arthurian uh, stories and, uh, and folk tales. There's also Tristan and Isolde, which is a famous medieval European romance. Sure. And um, now, uh, and actually it's not new, uh, people have been arguing for quite a long time that it is likely, at least partially influenced by an earlier Parthian Iranian story called Vis and Ramin, which has had also many incarnations in the Iranic world. There was, it was originally a sort of a folktale, and then it was used by the famous writer Nizami, and so on and so forth. It's had many incarnations. And uh, the, the epic of, uh, of Vis and Ramin was written in verse in the 11th century, uh, but the narrative is believed to date from the Parthian era, so from around 200 BC to 280. Wow. It's much, much older than that. Um, the story, of, it's it's of two, you know, star-crossed lovers, uh, has echoes in Celtic story of the Tristan and Isolt, of course. And both stories, they feature uh, a young woman, uh, Vis, or Isolt in the European version, married to an older king, uh, Mobot in the Iranian version, Mark in the European version. They have an affair um, uh, between uh, the queen and, and uh, a young relative of the queen, uh, or of the king, I should say, Rami, or Tristan in the uh, European version. And some of the similarities throughout the story include Rami and Tristan falling in love with their paramours while bringing them to the men that they're supposed to marry. Uh, a handmaiden or nurse with magical knowledge who takes the place of her mistress in her husband's bed. <laughs> and then they both have an ordeal by fire. And they both have a separation between the two lovers. Uh, where the young man goes off and marries someone else for a while before returning. So, you know, every bit of the story is pretty much the same. And so the question was always, how is it that this, clearly we you know this was a Parthian story and it's earlier than Tristan, you could have made it to Europe. And of course, the vector that's theorized is through the Alans, because the Alans were the same culture complex as the Parthians. And certainly they would have shared a lot of the same folk tales. Oh, straight line. So that's that. Um, and then, uh, of course, uh, uh, if we have time, uh, how, much, how, how are we on time? We're doing fine on this end. Um, we don't have time limits on the Garden of Doom, but we're just over an hour and 12 minutes. A couple, a couple of more points on as far as the history of kind of uh, ironic identity within Europe. Okay. Uh, although it's not very well known to the population now, to the general population, I should say, there were times where it was, believe it or not. There was a movement um, called Sarmatism in Poland where uh, the Polish nobility started to dress like Sarmatians. This is, you know, like 16th, 17th century now, so it's much, much later, right? So it's it's a harking back to like a golden age, right? Mm -hmm. But they very much clearly identified themselves, the nobility, right? As opposed to the general population, which were Slavs. The nobility said, we are we are Aryans, we are, we are Sarmatians. And there was a whole movement where they dressed differently, and there was a, a, a whole set of poetry and literature around it called Sarmatism. People can look it up. And that went out of style, you know, after the 19th century. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, then here's, here's the, the sort of a, the clincher for me, is that 
not only is there genetic evidence, not only is there Roman history, not only are there artifacts, folkloric evidence, we actually have very specific Scottish and Irish written history that claims that they are from Scythian and Sarmatian origins. Did you know that? I did not. In the 1320s, uh, I'll give you two examples. A letter was written, 1320s, so we're talking about the high Middle Ages now. Uh, a letter was signed by nearly 50 Scottish earls and barons to the Pope. Uh, I don't know who the Pope was at that moment. Asking him to recognize Scotland's independence and recognize Robert the Bruce as king. Oh, okay. In this letter, uh, signed by nearly 50, you know, Scottish nobles, uh, in this document, there's a curious reference to Greater Scythia. The declaration states that the Scots' origins uh, are from Greater Scythia, and that there's, their ancestors sailed to Scotland by way of the Thrymini, let me see if I can say this correctly, Thuranian Sea. Thuranian Sea is a is an old term for a portion of a, of the Mediterranean. Gotcha. Uh, and through the Pillars of Hercules, or Straits of Gibraltar, as we know them now, mm -hmm. into the Atlantic, and then to Scotland. So in one of the oldest Scottish documents, they themselves are claiming they're from Scythian origin. Is this is a reach, and and the answer might well be no, but is is Scotia, Scotia, come from Scythia? I don't know. It's something I've heard that others say no. You know, I'm not a linguist, uh, and so when I when I've said that on the site, people have attacked me. Said that's so I, I won't go that far. Okay. I don't know. I it's, simply don't know. It's rank but speculation. It's that's speculative. But here we have actual Scottish history saying, "Well, look, we're from so they, they obviously had some you know knowledge from their past." And everybody should know Robert the Bruce from Braveheart. So th this was uh, some years after Braveheart when Robert the Bruce, I guess, uh, uh, got, got his courage back. That's right. Um, there's an even older, so that was from 12th, 13th century. There's an even older reference, another origin story, um, that links the Picts, the Picts, you know, the, you know that yeah, uh, sure. one of the groups uh, that um, invaded Britain. Uh, to the Scythians as well. This time the source is uh, the famous, the Venerable Bede, who was a monk. A lot of uh, your listeners will have heard of the Venerable Bede. And uh, he was a, a, an English monk uh, at the monastery uh, of St. Peter and uh, a companion uh, monastery of St. Paul in the kingdom of Northumbria mm. uh, of the Angles. Sure. And uh, so uh, this was a eighth century, uh, if I'm correct. And the story is that <clears throat> these Scythians uh, came by ship to Ireland, but as, uh, the Irish refused to let them land, but told them of another land, uh, Scotland, namely. And the Picts, uh, uh, who claimed to be Scythians, um, and coming from the sea, they took some Irish women with them as sort of a compromise to invading <laughs> Ireland itself to settle our Scotland, but under the condition that they would, from that point onward, promote the kingship or the royal line from the female 
or matrilineal side. And since they're taking these Irish women, well, the Irish would be now the royalty in Scotland. Yeah, so everybody wins. Gods uh, do have a share, according even to the venerable bead of this Scythian uh, uh, genetic inheritance, you could say. I have to take and a pause then, here for a second. We say, I just realized I said everybody wins. We don't know if those women won. <laughs> I mean, we, we don't know that for sure. We don't know if they volunteered or not. Unfortunately, you know, women have throughout history been used. Uh, often uh, like property, essentially. Right. Let's, or, uh, let's hope they volunteered. <laughs> you know. But uh, there's a great book, uh, another one I've mentioned from Scythia to Camelot several times, but on this Irish topic and the Venerable Bede and so on and so forth, I would also recommend people to a, a, a more recent book called Erin and Iran, Erin, E-R-I-N, which is an old term for Ireland. Sure. Right, mm-hmm. and the subtitle is "Cultural Encounters Between the Irish and the Iranians." Um, it's by H. E. Chahabi and Grace Neville. It's a beautiful cover on it, and uh, that also uh, gets into this topic uh, fairly deeply. And of course, uh, uh, I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't mention for those who again want to delve into this sort of thing. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with Monty Python and and the late great Terry Jones, he had a serious, a lot of people don't know that he was actually a historian after the Python days, a legitimate historian. And he did a series called Barbarians, and one of the episodes is called The Brain Barbarians, where he actually goes to Iran and he films uh, a, a giant statue of a fully armored equestrian knight and horse it's, it's called the Taghe Bostan in Kermanshah province, Iran. And he's just flabbergasted because he says to his audience, is this 13th century Merovingian France? Right. No, it's Sasanian 5th century Iran. So he was also, you know, he, he caught on to this connection uh, on his own. And then, you know, for people wondering, what happened to all these people? Why, did they, at what point did they become fully mixed in or baked into the larger European populations and no longer have a specific, let's say, Sarmatian identity or an Alonic identity to just became Frenchmen or Brits. Well, that happened, obviously, over centuries, but if you go back to where they started, back to the Caucasus, back to the Pontic Steppe, over the uh, Black Sea, there are actually still a people that still identify uh, as distinct Alans. They are called the Ossetians. They call themselves the Iranian, like Iranian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they speak a language very similar to Persian. <laughs> they consider part of themselves part of the Iranian world. They are where they're situated. They're, uh, uh, Ossetia is between Georgia, and north of Georgia, and, and, and Russia. Part of, part of it is in Russia, in the Russian Federation, and part of it is uh, an independent uh, state carved out of Georgia. The Ossetians are today's modern, still distinct um, descendants of the Alans, the ones who never left, never went westward. And uh, to this day, you know, they, they consider themselves ironic and Alonic. In fact, I will be doing an interview uh, in the coming weeks with a, a preeminent Western a Canadian Iranologist by the name of Richard Fultz, and he has just written a, a great book that just came out last year, 
he has a, a Setian wife himself. <laughs> and uh, he jokingly says that he's going to make Scythian babies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's written a book about these Osets as the descendants, the modern day still surviving, still distinct uh, descendants of these uh, Alonic peoples. That's great. This is this is terrific. Um, but you know what you, you, you promised me? Amazons. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I almost forgot. You forgot about the Amazon. No, don't forget yeah, the Amazon. So again, again uh, the, the take that I have from everything I read is the Amazons were also mostly ironic peoples, <laughs> Sarmatian specifically. The Amazons were, uh, remember, uh, around 500 BC, 600 BC, 400 BC, uh, during the golden age of Greece, Periclean Greece that era, the Greeks were constantly not only fighting the southern Iranian Persians to their east, who invaded them a couple of times, but they were also fighting these sort of nomadic barbarian Iranian peoples to the north, the Sarmatians, and sometimes allied with them, sometimes fighting, and sometimes, you know, they traded with them, Scythians and Sarmatians. And they were just flabbergasted and shocked that these, these Sarmatian peoples, um, they had female warriors. Uh, whereas in the Greek world, uh, women certainly did not fight, and they were very much sort of second-class citizens. Greece has brought us many things, uh, democracy and so on and so forth, and philosophy, but it, it was not one of the leaders in terms of women's rights. Right. Whereas these nomadic, barbarian, uh, you know, equestrian, ironic Sarmatians to the north were actually much more advanced on that front, <laughs> at least. And uh, uh, even um, the, uh, the the story of the women, you know, cutting off their one of their breasts so they could shoot better with a, a bow and arrow, so on and so forth. Now uh, scholars believe that they were talking about mostly these Sarmatian female warriors. In fact, there's a reference. There, there's many references on this, but there was a good article in the BBC recently. If any of your listeners want to look it up online, it's called. Uh, two thousand year old Wonder Woman who inspired the comic. Right. That title. Um, I think it came out a year or two ago, so you can Google it. And I'll actually read you a, a couple of lines directly from the article, sure. if you don't mind. No, go ahead. And uh, so, quote: The Sarmatians were a people of Iranian heritage, with men and women skilled in horsemanship and battle. Excavations within the modern borders of Iran have revealed the existence of female warriors. In the northwestern Iranian city of Tabriz, 109 warrior graves were unearthed. Uh, archaeologists found the DNA found in one of them belonged to a woman. DNA testing was due to take place on another warrior. Uh, third, on more warrior graves, 38 of which are still intact, but according to mayor's contacts in Iran, that DNA research is halted because they ran out of funding in 2020, uh, lack of resources. Um, so contemporary audiences may recognize the character of Wonder Woman played by Gal Gadot. Uh, when I was a kid, it was uh, it was Linda Carter. Sure, or Linda Carter. First was Kathy Lee Crosby. So. Oh, is that, okay, that's your time. <laughs> Kathy Lee Crosby, okay. Yes. Yeah, I remember watching Saturday mornings. I almost said Linda Blair. I think that was the Exorcist movie. Right? That was the Exorcist, yeah. yeah. But yeah, Linda <laughs> Linda Carter is, is my Wonder Woman too. Yeah, now that's Gal Gadot. Um, and uh, uh, the original comic book characters first appeared in the U.S. in 1941, more than the stories that inspired the character. The Amazons of Greek mythology basically are real-life warrior women 
that led to this iconic modern day Wonder Woman uh, character, uh, who everyone now knows. In fact, they have roots in ancient Persia, modern day Iran. And this is, again, a quote from the article itself. Uh, now, the article, I think, is actually a little bit wrong, in my opinion, <laughs> because, again, it's conflating Persia with Iranic, right? Mm -hmm. I think they have uh, more clear roots in the northern Iranic heritage rather than the Persians, per se. But it was counted. In fact, I'll end it with this. If you look at today's Kurdish women, a lot of people are familiar through the news of the Kurdish women who were fighting ISIS uh, a few years back uh, fairly successfully. Uh, there are a lot of peoples, of course, the Kurds are descendants of the Medes, one of the great Western Iranian peoples, historically and, and contemporary as well. And they have preserved that, um, that uh, tradition. Uh, they are extremely independent, unlike what you would expect from the stereotype of a Middle Eastern woman. Uh, they're fairly rural to this day, and there's a, a little uh, article that was written um, uh, by a scholar in Canada named Kaveh Farouk, who's an Iranian-Canadian scholar. And uh, I, if you don't mind, I'll read a couple of sentences from that as well. I do not mind. He, he talks about these women and why, you know, he, he's surprised as, I'm no longer surprised, but he seems surprised or disheartened that they don't get the attention that they deserve in the West. So he says, Perhaps more remarkable is the relative silence in academia, notably Iranian studies, to the role of ancient Iranian women that ancient Iranian women played in the military, as well as during the pre-Islamic and post-Islamic era. One exception uh, is the late uh, scholar Shapur Shapazi's article on the Amazons in Encyclopedia Iranica, which is published by Columbia um, University, by the way. Uh, However, the general lack of academic rigor in this field is notable. Western academia, uh, entertainment outlets, and news media have provided virtually no insight or reference to this topic. However, this may be explained in part due to the classicism as well as geopolitical considerations. Put simply, it is a fact that women warriors of ancient Persia have received the least amount of attention by Western scholarship and popular media. Nevertheless, regardless of whether Western academia and media or political outlets choose, <laughs> by choice or ignorance, to disregard the role of women in ancient Iran, that cultural legacy, legacy has remained remarkably resilient. And one example of this is in the April of, of 2016 report from, uh, entitled Iranian Tribal Women. Um, there's... Uh, a great article about how there's an annual, uh, sort of an Olympiad of Iranic tribal women, equestrian women, uh, who use bow and arrows uh, uh, on horseback, uh, very much in the same tradition as their uh, ancestors did thousands of years ago. Of course, now it's not actual war. It's a, it's a sport. Similar. So that tradition is actually going on in Iran as we speak today, even though it's the so-called Islamic Republic. And it's very interesting to me that they haven't been able to stop it. Uh, probably because these are rural people and they kind of don't, don't mess with them too much. But it's astonishing that after two and a half thousand years, that at least in the Kurdish 
part of the Iranian world, women are still riding horses, shooting bows and arrows, or shooting rivals or rifles now on horseback, from horseback, uh, exactly in the same way as their so-called Amazon ancestor did the Sarmatians uh, back in uh, 25 or 500 BC. Well, well, Linda Carter will always be my Wonder Woman. I'm, I'm a fan of Gal Gadot, and I guess they got it a little bit closer, probably by accident, because she's Israeli. So, I mean, that's good. That's getting close. She is, isn't she? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So that's good. Getting... She, uh, she's an extraordinarily uh, beautiful woman as well. I don't want to be sexist about this one. It, it, it's all right. I mean, I, I think everyone knows that, that she was hired partly because she's an extraordinarily beautiful woman. <laughs> I mean, we, we, and, and in fact, she is. Um, so, so, people, men and women are hired in Hollywood, uh, not exactly for uh, just their acting skills. Let's put it that way. Correct. I mean, it is show business after all. That, that's why I do a podcast. So, <laughs> there right. you go. Well, that's why I only have the sound on here. So there you go. Uh, well, this is our own Darius the Great or Darius the Great. Thank you for everything. Uh, please tell the folks where they can find you, where they can support you, and all of the things that you're working on that they should look for at present and in the near, in the near term. Sure. Again, uh, my podcast, uh, to which I will be adding episodes shortly, is simply called the Persian Version. They can simply Google it. It's on uh, 12 or 13 different uh, platforms. The Facebook group is Ariana, um, the History of the Art and Culture of the Ionic Peoples. And um, again, I, I also want to mention that I am now uh, starting a, a book slash documentary project, hopefully both. Uh, sometimes these things go together. Um, uh, about the migrations of the Iranic peoples into Europe, uh, what we've kind of uh, touched upon uh, briefly in this, uh, but hopefully I'll be interviewing a good number of scholars, uh, both here in Canada and in Europe. And if I have the finances available, we'll be able to travel to, to meet these people and actually um, get some footage of some of these sites uh, that we're talking about uh, uh, from Russia all the way through Britain. Excellent. All right. Well, very cool. Everybody look for that. And thank you once again, Darius. And folks, uh, again, check out his podcast. Check out the prior Garden of Dune episode called The Persian Version. And uh, we certainly hope to have Darius back again. We've been talking about some other topics. Actually, we had a much longer list for this one and, and whittled it down. So, uh, and, and I brought up another one, which uh, as well, which may or may not materialize. Anyway, if you like Darius, you can certainly hear him on his projects. And if you like to hear him in combination with me, you will almost certainly be doing so again, uh, you know, within the next few months. So I thank you so much again for being part of the show. It's been fun as always, Jeff. Look forward to doing it again. Great. All right, folks, we just disconnected with Darius. I hope I didn't cut him off while he was, while he was saying take care, but that's what he said. That was his closing line uh, to me and to you as well. Um, so check out his stuff, support his work. Uh, we'll be looking for his future projects. And uh, like I said, we're definitely going to have him on the show again with some other fun and interesting topics. He says he's not an expert. I don't know. sounds pretty expert to me, but what do I know? Um, anyway, again, Part of the show is that you hear it, you digest it, you decide what, what you want to take from it. And if you want to do your own research, uh, you know, that's great. Um, you know, and there's, uh, you know, I would say that there's some pretty good companion shows here. Uh, the recent Red Line podcast 
had some stuff where there was some overlap. You may not see it uh, initially, but when you listen to the whole show, I think you'll see that there's some overlap there. Also, the show with J.P. Bristow, the, the Russian Empire prequel, I think is what I called the, uh, that episode. But that has uh, explored some of the same concepts, but maybe more from the Turkic uh, perspective a little bit. Um, but there's certainly some overlap there, and there's some differences too, and you, you can judge those. Anyway, hope you had fun, hope you found it interesting. It's cool to think that, that King Arthur and the Amazons and, and Tristan and Isolde, which I always said Isolde, but I'm sure I said it wrong, um, you know, may, if, if not definitively, have some ironic uh, origins to them. It, it, so, yeah, I'm not going to say anymore because. Uh, I'll just be repeating myself, which is another trademark of the show. Anyway, thanks so much. We will see you next week again, or you'll hear us next week. Um, I certainly hope you'll take the time to share with friends who might be interested in the wide panoply of topics that we cover on Garden of Doom. It's like 20 different podcasts rolled up into one. Uh, that's my sales pitch this week. But give us five stars. Write a review. It certainly helps. Spotify and Apple both allow for that, so it really does help. Um whatever those algorithms are that, that recommend shows to other people as well. Um, and we really do benefit from word of mouth. So I'm excited about the prospects for the show going forward. Um, made some contacts recently and going to continue to do what we do, which is collaborate with a lot of other great, fun, interesting podcasts and interesting people. We're rolling ever closer to the field anthropology conference. So we're going to start getting some of those folks on uh, board already have a show or two recorded that'll be ready for that as well um so anyway thanks for everything see you next time